morning, let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 5. We're in Acts chapter 5 as we study through the book of Acts. We're going to look at verses 11 through 16, provide a segue, uh, an important segue between two stories. The topic of those verses we'll see is that great fear is associated with the church and the apostles perform many signs and wonders, so much so that even Peter's shadow falling on a, a person would heal them. The title of our message, Don't Pan Peter's Shadow. That works on so many levels, it's, it's scary, really. Acts chapter 5, verse 11. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let's pray together. Lord, how appreciative we are of this record of your first church. We understand some of it in its own context as unique and special, Lord, but so much of it gives us a, a, a standard by which we can measure our own progress, our own relationship with you. And I pray that we would be able to draw out of this text some of those things today. And uh, beyond what I might mention, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would talk to us personally and corporately going from heart to heart, revealing those things that are needful, exciting, and wonderful. We thank you and we praise you. We do it in Jesus' name and everyone who agreed said, amen. amen. There is a phobia clinic that offers treatment for ecclesiophobia, the fear of churches. Let me read you an excerpt from their literature. Defined as a persistent, abnormal, and unwarranted fear of churches, each year, this surprisingly common phobia causes countless people needless distress. Ecclesiophobia. The symptoms typically include shortness of breath, rapid breathing, irregular heartbeat, sweating, nausea, and overall feelings of dread. Although everyone experiences fear of church in their own way and may have different symptoms. I've noticed for most people, those symptoms uh, alleviate after the offering. <laughs> I can't resist. Though a variety of potent drugs are often prescribed for fear of church, which would bring more people in, I think, uh, side effects and or withdrawal symptoms can be severe. Moreover, drugs do not cure fear of church or any other phobia for that matter. At best, they temporarily suppress the symptoms through chemical interaction. The good news is that modern, fast, drug-free process of our phobia clinic will train your mind to feel completely different about churches, eliminating the fear so it never haunts you again. Uh, deep in their literature, the cost of the program, minimum $2,500. 
That's enough to give you paniophobia, the fear of poverty. <laughs> or perhaps harpaxophobia, which is the fear of being robbed. Uh, one of those two. Now, setting aside any persistent, abnormal, and unwarranted phobia of church, there should be a positive, normal, and warranted fear associated with the church. We read in our verses that great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. Non-believers and believers both had a healthy fear of what God was doing in the first church. I want to explore the fear associated with the church. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, your church should strike fear in non-believers. And number two, your church should stimulate fear in believers. First of all, verses 11 through 13, your church should strike fear in unbelievers. Now, our verses assume that you know what just occurred in the life of the first church. A husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira, sold a piece of property and gave the proceeds to the church. They held back a portion for themselves. It would have been okay, except that they lied, and they said that they were donating the entire proceeds. Given a word of knowledge, the Apostle Peter confronted Ananias, telling him he had lied to the Holy Spirit. Ananias was immediately struck dead. Three hours later, Peter confronted Sapphira. She too lied and was immediately struck dead. The result was verse 11. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. The episode with Ananias and Sapphira established that God was present in the gatherings of these first Christians. Something real and powerful was happening among these people. Lives were being changed. There was therefore a reverential fear and awe of the very presence of God. This was a good fear. This was a healthy fear. We need to be reminded, or we need to remind ourselves, that lives need changing and that the place to change them is church. It is where believers have gathered together that Jesus has promised to visit with his grace and mercy. Where two or three have gathered together in my name, Jesus said, there he will be. He walks in our midst, seeking to minister from heart to heart. And so whenever we gather together, whether it's like this on Sunday morning or any other meetings of, of Christians, there should be a sense, uh, especially an official meeting, you know, a Bible study or something like that, as opposed to just your fellowshipping together, but it also should be there. There should be a sense that God is present in our midst, present in power, listening. There's a scripture I like in Malachi that says he is eavesdropping on our conversations one with another. And, and that is a precious thing, to think that the Lord loves us so much that he wants to be a part of who we are and everything that we do. And, and so be reminded this morning that the Lord is here. Uh, he is in this place. He's promised to be here, and he's ministering. And it should, it, by that alone, uh, well up in us a reverential fear uh, of the church. Now, this is the first mention of the word church in the book of Acts. We take the word for granted and use it all the time, but it hasn't been mentioned yet un until now. And there's about 10,000 people in it uh, by this time, but it's the first mention. It is the Greek word ecclesia or ecclesia. I use every possible pronunciation for when I get corrected afterwards. Uh, I have no idea how to pronounce 
Greek words, but it's, I think, ekklesia, which can be translated called out ones. The church consists of all those who are called out of the world by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It consists of all those who hear and then heed the message of salvation by grace through faith and are born again. It is whoever will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Christians are called out of the world into this organism, the church. Now, the verse draws a strong contrast. There is the church, those called out ones, and then there are those to whom God is still calling non-believers described as all who heard these things. And so God is calling out to everyone in the world, and those who respond to his call and who are born again are the called out ones, but the call continues to everyone. All of your neighbors, all of your friends, all of your family, everyone on planet Earth is being called. I had a discussion after first service with one of the brothers about, well, you know, he has a friend that's arguing with him about what about people who've never heard the gospel. In Acts 17, we'll get there, God says, I have scattered people all over the world for the express purpose that they would seek after me. And the whole time we're scratching our heads trying to figure out now, why would you scatter them where they've never heard the gospel so that they could seek after you? God is working in their hearts and in their midst to draw them to himself. So let's just leave that to God. And and the real issue here is when people say, hey, what about the person who's never heard? Say, well, let's talk about him after I tell you. And after you decide if you're going to die and go to hell or live forever in heaven, uh, you know, and, and then we'll worry about maybe you're the one that God is wanting to send to the pygmies. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe it's you. And, it, you know, and that kind of a thing. And so people, they always try and throw you off the scent, you know, but God is calling everyone out of the world into this beautiful thing, the church. Now, it is the fear of the non-believer these next two verses focus on. In verse 12, and uh, through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch is this outdoor kind of portico, very large, that was around the temple, uh, good for a meeting. And we're going to talk more about the many signs and wonders in just a moment. For now, we want to note that non-believers were aware of them and they were in awe of them. In verse 13, yet none of the rest dared join them but the people esteemed them highly. Non-believers stayed away from church. It's just the opposite of what we normally think. We're always trying to get non-believers to come to church. Should we change our strategy? Go knock on your neighbor's door and say, hey, uh, by the way, I'm going to church this morning. Please don't come. Be kind of freaky. But it wasn't the believers who were barring them. The non-believers saw that something radical was going on and they were cautious. They knew that they were not Christians and that they didn't belong to that group. And, and, uh, you know, there's, in our society, every time they do polls, uh, like 90% of the people in America consider themselves Christians. Uh, But you and I would say, on any given day at the mall or driving down the road, 90% of those people are not Christians. Uh, 90% of the people you know are not Christians, even if you are a Christian and all you know is Christians sometimes, you, you wonder. You know? but, uh, and so the, the idea here is they knew that something amazing and radical was going on at the church. It's okay to invite folks to church. What the verse is telling us is that non-believers understood that you didn't take this gathering lightly. You could die there. 
They esteemed the believers highly who were willing to put their lives on the line to serve the Lord. They understood that the believers were serious about their faith. Your church, our church, should strike this same general fear in non-believers, and hopefully without anyone having to be struck dead. Now let's look at a few of the elements that kindle this fear. The apostles were performing many signs and wonders. The signs and wonders contributed to this sense of fear because God was manifesting power through them. There seems to be a connection between the episode with Ananias and Sapphira and this new outbreak of supernatural activity. In other words, God, God dealt with this couple, dealt with that sin, and then immediately there was this fresh new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. One author described this new outbreak of signs and wonders as the evidence of what he called an ungrieved Holy Spirit. In the book of Ephesians, you learn that you can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. In the passage, you learn that you grieve the Holy Spirit by living like people in the world, by yielding to your sin nature, by lying, by getting angry, by stealing, by cursing, by harboring bitterness, by being unforgiving, and by engaging in sexual immorality of a variety of kinds. Any of those behaviors and others will grieve the indwelling Holy Spirit. Individually or corporately, we must grapple with whether or not we are grieving the Holy Spirit. If non-believers have no fear of the church, it is at least possible, if not likely, that we are grieving him. As we saw last week, he's not killing us. He's doing something far worse, in a sense, and allowing us to live a lie grieving him. Nothing powerful is happening. No one is uh, being drawn to the Lord. And so this is the first thing that we want to look at in terms of fear. Are we grieving the Holy Spirit? Another element of the fear associated with the first church was their unity. It says they were all with one accord. Now this whole section, their unity is described as their uh, sharing their possessions one with another. That was the practical expression of their being in one accord. Barnabas sold property and gave it to the apostles. It was because of that that Ananias and Sapphira sold their property, held back a portion, gave the rest to the apostles. And so now the Holy Spirit is returning us to this idea that they were all in one accord, showing a great generosity towards one another in caring for the needs of one another, no matter the level of personal sacrifice. Non-believers could look upon the church and see that if you went there, you might be stimulated to sell your worldly possessions in order to help others. That kind of generosity can inspire fear. You, you know, I, I, you don't want to do that. I mean, there are people who think, hey, I don't, I'm not going to go there because I'm, I'm liable to have to sell my house at the end of the church service because I hear of some needs. It was so real what was happening among these people. Without the apostles asking for it, without anybody grinding them week after week about the benevolence program or anything like that, God was sweeping through them and putting this on their heart. And an unbeliever, an unbeliever would have a fear of this because when you're in the world, that's all you live for is your house and your car and your portfolio and getting ready for retirement and all of those things. And so when you see a group of people who care little or nothing about those worldly possessions, one helping the other, it starts to challenge your normal way of American thinking that, well, you could be rich too if uh, you weren't a deadbeat. 
you know, and that kind of a thing. And, and everybody has this idea. And so it's, it's, it inspires fear. Generosity is a powerful thing in God's church. And all of us have uh, an opportunity to be generous, and we have the obligation to look at our finances and our possessions and to be as generous as the Lord puts on our heart to be. Now, the final element I would draw from these verses is a sense that these first Christians were genuine. I'll mention this several times, but you know they continued to gather even after God struck two of them dead. So let's say you live next to a Christian couple, you're in the first century, and you see them getting ready to go to the temple to a meeting of the church on the first day of the week, and you say, hey, are you guys, are you still going there? Yeah. Didn't Ananias and Sapphira get struck dead in one of your services? Sure. Aren't you afraid that God might strike you dead? And they would probably answer something similar to, we're more afraid that he won't and that he'll let us live a lie. We would rather be struck dead by God than live a lie. We need to have this life. Where else would we go? And, and I mean, there, you know, we can't really fully understand this because as far as I know, you know, I've been here in Hanford for 22 years and, and I don't think God has struck anybody dead in church like this. Uh, people may have died in churches from natural causes or from listening to long, boring sermons, uh, you know, that kind of a thing. By the way, I've, I've read in a, this is in a, it's not a medical journal, it's a religious journal, that the more you look at your watch, the more likely you are to have a heart attack in church. <laughs> These people were genuine. They had to be at church. Where else would they go? It didn't, I'm sure there was a healthy fear. None of us are perfect. There's, a, there's always been a time, or, or in all of our lives, there, there's been a time when God probably should have struck us dead for acting like Ananias and Sapphira, and yet there was a genuineness about it. Now, these then are the elements our church needs in order to strike fear in nonbelievers, an ungrieved Holy Spirit, generosity, and genuineness. And that leads us to our second point, verses 14 through 16, your church should stimulate fear in believers. Nonbelievers will never fear the church if believers don't. Let's discuss the fear of our first century brothers and sisters. In verse 14, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Non-believers wouldn't join the church, but believers were being added to it. Church isn't an organization you can join. It is an organism that you are added to. You hear and respond to the good news that though you are a sinner, Jesus died for you and has saved you. You believe, you're born again, and then you find yourself added to this living, growing church. One of the favorite New Testament metaphors to describe the church is that it is the body of Jesus on the earth. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He had a body on the earth, physically speaking. Now he's in heaven with that, and he says, I still need a body in order to do ministry. You all collectively are my body. You are the incarnation, as it were, of Jesus on the earth. And so we're not names on a list uh, on some register. We're like Jesus' hands and feet and mouth and all of this. We're an organic unit not an organism. That's the idea. Now, it is truly remarkable that right after two believers were struck dead for their sin, multitudes more were being added. 
believers were willing to lay it out before God. They would rather be struck dead than go on living the lie. That is a real reverential fear. Women are mentioned as being among the multitudes being increasingly added to the Lord. Uh, women had been added previously, but only now does Luke mention them. As the book of Acts progresses, we'll see gender, ethnic, and national distinctions broken down. The church is the place on the earth where all are truly equal before God, spiritually speaking. Notwithstanding that we have different roles, different giftings, different callings, different responsibilities, but in a true sense, in a spiritual sense, there's no difference between men, women, uh, in terms of our ethnic nationalities and, and, and the nations that we serve and all of that. We are equal before God. Now, spiritual equality can stimulate a healthy fear. One reason is that within the church, if you understand this principle, you'll find that everyone is gifted and called upon to serve the Lord and one another. In other words, whatever size your church is, there isn't just one or two or 10 or 20 men and women who are hired and paid to do the work of the ministry. They do a particular work within the ministry, but the New Testament concept is that all of us are to do the work of the ministry wherever God has put us. And when we come together, one of the reasons we come together is to be built up so that we can go out and do the work of the ministry and be giving the gospel to those that the Lord is calling out from the world into his church. Now, this is what that means. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever been on call? Uh, a lot of you have, and some of you in a very serious job situation. I, I, I have a knack for noticing uh, things that are absolutely uh, non-essential. Uh, and one of my favorite non-essential things to notice is how many cell phones and pagers people carry. And you've seen some of these people. Some of them are more obvious than others. I've seen guys with Bluetooth on both ears. I mean, that is, you're important. I mean, the only thing that I haven't seen is both ears and then another one, you know, because the, the old wired kind. I mean, but I've seen Bluetooth, Bluetooth I've seen guys with three or four cell phones, kind of like a bat belt, you know. <laughs> pagers all over them. I'm look, and I look at the, I think, man, you are on call, you know, uh, or you're, you know, the publisher's clearinghouse guy or something. I don't know who you are, but, and, and so the idea, but some of you have been on call, and when you're on call, you're available, and usually, depending on what you're on call for, you have a certain response time, you have to be in a certain geography, uh, you know, you can't be on call uh, here in Hanford and take a trip to Northern California when they need you in 20 minutes, you know, that kind of a thing. And so you're on call. All Christians are always on call. In wherever, wherever God's planted you, wherever he's put you, whatever, however he's gifted you, you are on call in that situation. And so there should be a healthy fear that I don't have time to be really, you know, uh, struggling spiritually or, or not paying attention to my spiritual life or my spiritual growth. Sometimes there's a tendency to think, well, you know, I'm not really doing anything in the church. Nothing's happening here. I, I can just kind of slack off. I don't, I don't need to do some of these things. I'll pick up on them next time. That's the wrong attitude. There should be a fear that the Lord is going to call upon you to open your mouth and share with somebody or to, to do something kind or just to minister to you about something. And so that will stimulate a healthy fear. 
Back now to the many signs and wonders being done by the apostles. Some of the signs and wonders done are further described, beginning in verse 15. It says, So that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Now, Peter evidently had a route that he followed every day when he would leave the upper room and come to the temple and to Solomon's porch. Believers lined that route with the beds and couches of sick individuals. By the way, earlier in Acts, we saw that Peter came to the temple each day at what time? Three o'clock. It was the time of prayer. And so we would say that this was Peter's three o'clock shadow. I get so happy. Conservative commentators rush to point out that the verse doesn't explicitly say that people were healed by the shadow. I mean, they can't wait to tell you that, that it doesn't explicitly say that. It doesn't explicitly say it because it doesn't have to. Of course they were healed as Peter's shadow walked by. If God wants to heal people using a shadow, who am I to analyze it and criticize it. It wasn't necessarily superstitious to think Peter's shadow falling upon someone might heal them. In their culture, a shadow was understood to be an extension of the person. Believing that exposure to Peter's shadow would heal was simply believing that God was healing through Peter. These people had received teaching from the apostles. Many of them perhaps had heard how the woman pressed forth through the crowd and touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Jesus said, whoa, stop everything, time out, who touched me? Power had gone out through the hem of his garment. Or how that many times people would come to Jesus and he would heal from a distance and just speak the word and someone would be healed. And so they understood more than we do that God heals in a variety of different ways, sometimes very unusual ways. When we were studying last Wednesday night, there's an episode after Elisha is buried that uh, some guys are hiding from him and they lower the body of a dead companion into his tomb and, and he is resurrected because of, raised from the dead because he touched Elisha's bones. I wonder how many people started throwing dead bodies into Elisha's tomb. But after a while, if it didn't work, they'd move on, figuring that God wasn't at work that way anymore. And so, very practically speaking, if you're Peter or the other apostles, you can't lay hands on everyone, all the multitude. You can't even pray individually for all of them, and yet you're in a unique outpouring of healing. Back up for a minute. We have no problem talking about revival, whether we're conservative or Pentecostal as scholars. We know that there are genuine revivals. When God pours out his spirit in, in such a beautiful abundance that whole families, whole counties, whole countries, as it were, are saved during a certain period of time. God seems to do the same thing in this area of healing. And this was a time when the people recognized that God was pouring out his spirit and that there were a variety of means that he was willing to use in order to heal. 
the spoken word, laying on of hands, the shadow passing by. I don't have a problem with it. Now, a question we do have is, why doesn't God heal as much today? The answer to that is, he does. First, I would point out that the mention of the shadow does contribute to our understanding that God sometimes does more signs and less other times. The people understood this to be such an outpouring. But then I would suggest that we need to expand our thinking about signs and wonders to include the rest of the world. I mean, you can't help but have tunnel vision when you live in Hanford, the most beautiful place on earth. Is there any place else? And, and, but we have to expand our thinking to the rest of the world. If you support Gospel for Asia, you might have received an email this week that mentioned a few miraculous healings. I want to quote a portion of that. Shantama was a disgraced widow who sunk even lower in society when she was diagnosed with AIDS. Sindubai had heard the gospel many times and rejected it until she had an extreme allergy problem. Sudhakar suffered from epilepsy, and when it worsened, he came to the verge of committing suicide. And Shanti's mental problems threw her parents into such depression that they, too, considered suicide. Yet each of these people found miraculous healing when they heard about and trusted in Jesus Christ. Here is how it happened. Shantama's life was transformed when a Gospel for Asia missionary shared Jesus, and after a few days, she was healed completely. Shantama gave her life to Christ and is growing in him day by day. Sindhu Bai visited a prayer meeting in her brother's house and allowed the pastor to pray for her agonizing allergy. Days later, it disappeared and she received salvation. A GFA missionary came to Sudhakar's home with the gospel, and full of hope, Sudhakar believed, and the Lord healed him from epilepsy. Sudhakar and his wife decided to follow Jesus, and he is now in a GFA Bible college. Shanti's family first rejected the message of GFA missionary Kumar, but slowly they started listening as he kept visiting. When Kumar and several believers prayed, Shanti was healed, and the family turned to the Lord. Now, commenting on these and other genuine miraculous events, GFA says, in these spiritually focused cultures, people are quicker to realize who deserves the credit for miracles. Healings in these places draw people to salvation as they realize Jesus is more powerful than all their gods. The flood of healing stories coming from Asia shows again the Lord's love and desire for souls to be saved, and through his mercy, thousands of people are being saved and giving glory to to God. Now, that's their understanding of why God heals more in Asia. Uh, that's part of it, I'm sure. Part of it is just God does different things. Bible commentators, it's always all or nothing. Either God still heals today just like he did, or he doesn't heal at all. And most people fall on the side of the fence that says he doesn't really heal that way anymore because we just don't see those outpourings. I think maybe we'd see more of it if Bible commentators didn't spend so much time trying to convince us that he doesn't heal anymore, and if Pentecostals didn't spend all of their time faking healings so that we would think that he is healing, and just let God be God, continue to pray for healing. Uh, you know, we, we're not all stressed out that there isn't a revival in our county, right? Now, I mean, we want there to be, but we don't we don't invent one. We, we're not, you know, denying the pro possibility of revival. Why do the same thing with miraculous healings and signs and wonders? And so let's just stay focused and balanced. Back to our topic, talking about Peter's shadow, you also cast a shadow. 
not just physically, but figuratively. Your life impacts all the other lives around you, or at least it can. It can influence them to the extent that you are standing in the Son of God and being used to cast his shadow upon them to represent his character on the earth. And therefore, we should uh, fear to misrepresent the Lord. We want to represent the Lord as loving and gracious and full of wonder and romance, reaching out to people. Sadly, the church and individual Christians, we don't always represent the, the, the Lord properly. I think a great slogan for a lot of churches would be, what's in your wallet? Because the way that the contemporary church so often represents God is as wanting all of your resources for their next project. There's a, a church, this was a real billboard at a church, and we, I like it because it was just so honest. And uh, it, it said, anybody can honk, tithe if you love Jesus. And at least they're honest about it. You know, they're right there in your face. We want your tithe and all that. Setting all that aside, it's only an illustration. There are many other ways we can misrepresent God's nature and his character to people. Uh, and, and we don't want to do that. We want to cast the shadow of Jesus Christ upon a person's life. So we want people to, and some, many of you, a lot of you, maybe all of you have had the experience where the friends and neighbors and relatives who know that you're a Christian have come to you, come into that shadow as it were. When tragedy strikes, when suffering comes, when they, they really need an answer, they find that shadow that you've cast and come in and ask you to help them. Verse 16, also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The author of Acts was Luke, a trained, board-certified physician. He distinguishes between the physically sick and those tormented by demons. Some of these people were, in fact, oppressed and possessed by demons. They weren't simply misdiagnosed epileptics, which is usually the way you find them in the literature. Uh, you know, first century people were really dumb and they couldn't recognize epilepsy because they weren't as scientific and so they assumed people were being tormented by demons. Even though Jesus and the apostles went around casting out demons, not curing epilepsy. Uh, demonic oppression and possession is real. Modern science hasn't debunked it as fiction of our previous medical ignorance. If anything, some people who are genuinely demonically tormented are the ones currently being misdiagnosed. Any good movie about demon possession starts with that premise. Not that I've ever seen any, but there's always somebody who's possessed by the devil and everybody thinks it's a medical thing until the one guy, you know, whoever it is, a priest or a minister or a doctor, he gets drawn in and after a while he figures out it's a demon. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a demon. Yeah, yeah, head spinning, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and so, you know, and I, I think if anything, people are misdiagnosed today. Now, I'm not saying demonic possession is rampant and, you know, the Lord needs to reveal this to you. Uh, I, I think a lot of times, we're, you know, we're, we shouldn't immediately try to cast demons out of a person. There are chemical problems. A lot of people, people call and they say, this person, I think it's demonic. And if you interview the person, you find out that their brain is just fried on drugs and alcohol. I mean, they, they, they ruin themselves earlier in their life. And they're just not firing. It's like trying to drive a car that, you know, an eight-cylinder car on three cylinders. It just, you don't get very far. You know, it sputters and stuff. I mean, it's sad. But so, you know, you, you can't just jump to the demonic 
uh, you know, possession thing, and you don't want to, believe me, uh, but I, I, it's a real thing, and modern science has not debunked it. Now, the point here is that even the demons feared the church. Nothing could withstand the outflowing of God the Holy Spirit through the church. The very gates of hell could not prevail against it. The church is a powerful gathering. It is the very body of Jesus Christ on the earth today. On paper, we're able to do all that Jesus did when he was on earth. If you're a believer, you should be dying at church. You should be dying to sin and self. When you are, the Holy Spirit is ungrieved. You find yourself generous and genuine. If you're a non-believer, you cannot casually join any church, but you can be added to the Lord. He is even now calling you to become one of his called out members. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for these things, for their sincerity and for their clarity. We appreciate the way you worked in the first church and the way you're still working today. The same yesterday, today, and forever. And uh, Lord, I, I pray that we would continue to have a balanced approach to the outpourings of your Holy Spirit in revivals of salvation and in times of healing and miracles, that we would not be against them, neither would we be seeking them, that we would simply be serving you. Peter stood there, Lord, and you told him what to say to Ananias, and he did. And then as he walked by, you used him to heal many people. He prayed for them and they were healed. He, he just simply walked with you and witnessed what you were doing in him and through him. And so did the other apostles and the other 10,000 or so members of that first church. We want to return to that kind of simplicity as believers. And the place for us to begin, Lord, is to see if we are grieving your spirit. And that's a topic for each of us individually to spend time alone with you and to determine if we're doing any of those things so that ungrieved you will be sharing more of the love of our Savior with us. I'm going to spend just a minute now at the end. If you're here and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, we're going to give you an opportunity to receive the Lord. What we like to do is tell you what we're doing and then give you a chance to think about it and then to respond to the Lord. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, he will come in and have fellowship with you. And, and that's the place that you're at today and every day if you're not a believer. Jesus is calling out to you. He's doing it through this church service. He's doing it through this scripture. He's doing it right now. Somebody who's being called out to needs to respond. And what we're going to ask you to do in just a minute, if you want to respond to the grace of Jesus Christ and have your sins forgiven and know that you're going to heaven, we're going to ask you to raise your hand and reach up to God, acknowledging that, yes, I want to be saved. And so I want you to think about that. If you were to die today, tonight, do you know for sure that you would go to heaven? And if the answer is yes, are you basing that trust on the fact that you're a good person generally? Because if it is, you're in trouble. You must only base it on the goodness of God and the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so we're going to sing a chorus, give you a chance to think about your eternal destiny and destination. And I'm going to ask you, one time this morning, if you would raise your hand to receive Christ as your Savior. So let's sing. Christians pray, 
ask the Holy Spirit to have his work in the lives of any unbelievers that may be here. To all who are thirsty, to all who are weak, come to the fountain. Dip your heart in the stream of life Let the pain and the sorrow Be washed away In the waves of His mercy As deep cries out to deep we sing, come, Lord Jesus, come. We sing, come, Lord Jesus, come. The Lord isn't here to kill you. He's here to give you life, and that more abundantly. The Bible says that if you're not a Christian, you're born dead in trespasses and sins. You're physically alive, soulishly active, but there's a spirit that needs to be born again in you. That you might have fellowship with and communion with God and have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. No matter how great a sinner you are, He's a greater Savior. And if you think you're not that much of a sinner, the Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one, because God's standard is perfection, and none of us can achieve that. Praise the Lord that he sent Jesus Christ, God and man, to die for my sins, your sins, in your place, rise from the dead, ascend into heaven, that he might offer you his right standing in righteousness with God. If you're here this morning, and you have never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're not walking with the Lord, I want you to raise your hand so that we can just acknowledge that. God bless you. Anyone else? Raise your hand quickly here in these closing moments so that we can just pray for you. You want the Lord to save you. You want to draw close to Him and know the reality of this powerful life that we're reading about in the book of Acts. Praise the Lord. Father, I thank you for the work of your spirit, and I pray it would continue in the lives and hearts of the others that you are calling out of this group, Lord, and into your church. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of the guys will be up front afterwards to pray with you. If you wanted to raise your hand but didn't, you can still come to know the Lord. Let's stand together. Come forward uh, and just talk to the guys. Maybe you have some other need or desire, uh, prayer request. Spend some time here. Cafe exists for fellowship so that you can get to know one another. At least meet one person that you've never met before and, and, and just share with them a greeting in the Lord. May God bless you and keep you. Three o'clock, back here for the little kids. Think how sad they'll be if you're not here. That's the biggest guilt trip I can put on you. So anyway, God bless you. See you this afternoon.